Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club. My name is Joe. I am your host. And with me, as always, is the Real Wolf Record Club panel. We have got a great show for you today. I know I say that. I know I say that all the time, that we've got a great show. But we, we, we really... I'm nodding a lot. We really do have a great show for you today. We are talking about one of the great jazz records of all time by one of the great jazz persons of all time. Charlie Mingus was known for his work as a bassist, a pianist, an improvisational band leader. His bouts with depression, his tempers. And if you want to know exactly what I'm talking about, I encourage you to go take a look at a documentary called... uh, What is it? Mingus, Charlie Mingus, 1968, in which uh, he's getting evicted from an apartment. It's a fascinating view into into why they called this man the angry man of jazz. Charlie Mingus released 51 albums from 1949 to 1977 before his passing in 1979. His record, Mingus, uh, um, was among 50 recordings to be entered into the National Recording Registry in 2003 by Congress. His life was tumultuous. He grew up in the Watts area of L.A. Uh, A lot of stuff he talks about feeling ostracized in any number of communities or identities. He found himself, and that absolutely bled into his music. Uh, Um is a masterpiece released in 1959. It's an emotional album featuring tributes to dead friends and angry diatribes towards his enemies. And that's what we hope to pull out for you today. see what i did there but if, if mingus if charles mingus is known as the angriest man in jazz uh then i guess i would say it's safe that our guest might be the busiest man in the twin cities music scene <laughs> you may know him as the basis for live hip-hop legends of the twin cities the high respects college me at the university of minnesota just began tapping his feet uh you may also may also know him from his work with artists like dessa or with his solo project the twinkie jiggles broken orchestra Shit, you may know him as Twinkie Jiggles. He is the owner and founder of Trivia Mafia, the largest trivia company in Minnesota, and was most recently the longtime host on The Current and Minnesota Public Radio. He is the music director and afternoon host of Jazz 88, the Twin Cities' premier source of jazz and one of the highest-rated jazz stations in the country. Sean McPherson is here with us today. Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind introduction. It well, it's kind, but God, I'm I'm like out of breath, talking. Oh, like how have you finally been able to take a breath in the last year? Yeah, I I have. I I feel like I'm 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 busy, and I feel like there was a time where I might have been like the hardest working man in 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 Twin Cities music, but I don't feel like that right now. I have a demanding schedule, and I have a family and all that, but um, almost everything I do. I do on my own terms, which means I have a lot of control over my schedule. Until I left The Current, I worked every Saturday night on Radio Free Current. If you work every Saturday night, you can't play in other people's bands. You can Mm. only play in your own bands. So that means, like, I kind of, I got, I get to drive the bus as slow as I want all the time. So Mm -hmm. it's been very slow since having kids. Uh, But yeah, I'm, I'm. I feel busy, but yeah, I've, I've had time to rest. I've, I often am getting eight hours of sleep and we should end the myth of being like, you just want to be busy. I'm glad to be busy, but I also get downtime and I relax and it's a good thing. Mm. Well, and, and listeners familiar with your work or fans of your work uh, maybe weren't surprised to see you moved into a new role uh, somewhere, but, but Jazz 88 a big deal. I mean, not that you're not a big deal. I guess I'm leading that in a little bit, <laughs> like back-ended compliment. But, but I mean, how did you? How did that come together? So I've been a listener 
on and off of Jazz 88 since I moved here in 1996. I got to St. Paul Central High School and I got with a, a, a group of musicians at Walker West Academy. And then I got a bass teacher at McPhail. And my bass teacher was like, if you're trying to play music, you should try to play jazz. You should listen to Jazz 88. They're going to play high school bands. They're also going to play Minnesota artists and they're going to play a lot of great national stuff. So I started listening to Jazz 88, which was a thousand percent more agreeable to my dad than me just listening to the last four tracks of De La Soul Stakes is High over, <laughs> over again on the way to Central. So I listened to a bunch of Jazz 88. I was aware of them. I was so into my own vibe at Central and afterwards that I sort of checked out of a lot of radio stuff. I just was like, I'm going to listen to exactly what I think is the best thing because I was arrogant and in my 20s. Um, <laughs> since coming back and being more radio centric, I've listened to a bunch of Jazz 88. And so when I found out that there was some job openings there because the previous music director who I replaced also worked weekends at NPR. So he was a friend. Um, when I found out that that was open and like you, I feel like it's a big move. It's a big opportunity. It's a really well-known station. And it's also, it does a really special thing. And it's a, it's a cool Venn diagram. There's a whole bunch of radio people who could care mm -hmm. less about jazz, which is fine. Like jazz is not for everybody, but I'm a person who loves jazz. And so it wasn't, I don't have to like fake my love of jazz to do this gig. It's it's earnest. And then I get to DJ more, which is really mm -hmm. exciting to me. And I get a say, not even a say, I get a real seat at the table and what what music is offered at the station. That's a lot of responsibility. And I'm just navigating that. But it's still really exciting. What you mentioned they do that Jazz 88 has that special thing that they do, that thing that they kind of support. Um, what, what are you referring to? I mean, just now I was referring to the magic of playing jazz on the radio. There's not like <laughs> a, a special thing. There are some really amazing things about what Jazz 88 does with its connection to Minneapolis public schools. Yeah, that, and that's what I'm getting at more. I yeah. mean, it is magical jazz, but, yeah. you know, the good stuff. <laughs> right. So I get to hear, um, I just heard a woman who I believe her last name is Brown, but her first name is Mahogany, and I heard her on the air while I was working today. And I was like, wow. I mean, there's, there's, if you are a radio person, I think, and to some extent, I think y'all, if you've been establishing something as a podcast, you can suddenly go like, oh, some of these things I thought weren't difficult are actually quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And to hear Mahogany navigating these like dexterous breaks with fundraising, soft mentions, foreshadowing, back sell, front sell. I was like, that's incredible. And these are mm -hmm. students at, at high school where um, a lot of those opportunities are not available to any students in the country as far as access to an FM station that you're actually on during relatively significant hours of broadcasting. That that connection that you're referring to, which is, you know, Jazz 88 has a connection to Minneapolis public schools, specifically North Minneapolis public yep. schools. Um, a lot of kids with some challenges there. And so to have that connection and, you know, you walk through the halls there now and 20 years ago, that was you. 25 right. I, years yeah. ago, that was you walking through the hall. I mean, at a high school. Um, so, I mean, there, that, there's a connection there for sure. That's worth, you know, worth feeling good about for sure. A lot of us um, thrive at high schools as artists or creatives in spite of what our high school set up. And I think both at St. Paul Central and in Minneapolis North, what I'm seeing is programs that go, no, like this school is going to support your excitement about this thing that is not necessarily academics or athletics exclusively. So at the same way, higher specs felt supported at central to have students who care about doing radio and they don't have to do that in defiance of their high school. They can do that in concert with their high school. It's pretty cool. So. 
Now, you, you obviously mentioned St. Paul Central High School. Um, you were that kid in the sense that you were into art, you were into music. What was your experience like? And I mean, High Respect's got its start there. So, I mean, tell, tell us about that. I moved to Minnesota in 10th grade. So I grew up in rural Massachusetts and then my dad got a job in Minnesota. And I got to kind of pick my high school because they were like, figure out what works for you. And I toured a couple of high schools and I saw the, the music program that was at Central and I was really blown away. There's a teacher there named Red who is uh, really inspiring. He's since retired, but he's remained a lifelong, if not friend, at least an alliance. You know, like I, we're connected and I really support what he does. Um, the When I toured the high school, uh, the woman who was giving me a tour sort of interrupted Red and said, hey, this guy might come to Central. Can you talk to him for a while? And he sort of reprimanded her. He's like, excuse me, I'm talking to a student about their concert last night. Please wait. Don't interrupt me. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was very cool. And there was like an element where he was just like, I don't give a shit about this kid who might come here. I have a kid who is here who played a show last night. And then I heard like the first four questions Red asked were like, did you get paid? Did you put up posters for the show? Did you meet the other bands? Did you meet the person who booked it? Did you meet the sound person who did the sound for you? And it was this level of, oh, these are the questions I ask my friends and I've never heard an adult ask any of my friends. Wow. All the music teachers at that time in my life asked, what what chords do you want to play? What songs do you like? But they never asked anything that was like career affirming or mm-hmm. career ambitious. And so I, right there, I said, I'm in. Um, and through that, I, I, I think I, I think I excelled in St. Paul, the St. Paul music scene, because I realized it was way cool. I think if you're from here, you might go, oh, I got to get to Chicago or I got to get to Los Angeles. But coming from rural Massachusetts, I was profoundly aware of how much cooler <laughs> this was than where I came from. So I felt very, very um, I studied. I came for a year I, in 10th grade. I just watched this this student named Brock Hamill play bass and bands, play at coffee shops, put up posters, get people to go. And I just took notes for a year mm-hmm. and then I stole all that shit. And that's basically <laughs> what I'm still doing. <laughs> was basically that, that formula was what got higher specs into clubs in Minneapolis. And then sort of expanding that formula is what got us out on the road nationally. Obviously you played, you know, you played instruments though. I mean, how, how did you get into bass, bass guitar specifically? The, the old program of the older brother who played guitar. So, you know, it just, um, he, he, you know, he's like, oh, basically another kid in his band needed a bass. So he convinced me to ask my dad to buy a bass. My kid brother and, can play. <laughs> no, not even that. He was like, I'll get my kid brother to get a bass. And then my friend Jason will actually play it. Um, and then Jason Flake, because he was a guitar player at heart. And mm-hmm. I got pulled in to be the bass player. And I had a real, my first bass teacher was like is a national name person he wasn't at the time but now we'll see exactly how old you are you, are you all within the ages of 38 to 44 yes okay vertical horizon he's everything you want that was Big my deal. base teacher so yeah so his name is sean hurley he if you like look him up he was john mayer's bass player first time i saw him last time he was in town and i saw him he was with adina menzel but he was just the local guy who had been in Arlo Guthrie's band. Arlo Guthrie is from Western Massachusetts. He played with Arlo in high school, went to Berkeley, dropped out, was making a little blues band happen. And he was like the guy who showed me not only how to play, but like how to dress for a gig yeah. and how to like 
how to be nice to the person who books you, but also how to be nice to the bartender, even if you're like 14 years old, like still tip on your water and all that sort of stuff. And mm. so he was like formative. And then he turned out to be like an absolutely world-class bass player. Um, and he was like the guy who was like, Vertical Horizon is a ship that's I'm going to get off it as soon as I can and start playing with other people. So he was like every, everything he did, he was like, met the, met the producer, met the thing. So like yeah. uh, Glenn Ballard, who did Jagged Little Pill, he became his like right-hand bass player for a bunch of years. He just gave me a lot of, a lot of incredible advice. So I, well, and I don't want to, I don't want to digress too much, but when you, you said that song, I, again, not college me, but high school me was like, man, there is no drippier dude in the world than that dude singing those lyrics about some girl who's like, peace off, dude. I am not interested in you. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I don't know if you remember, he looked like Joe Satriani. He had a shaved head <laughs> and he wore like a very tight black shirt. I saw that many times. Yeah. And um, he did this thing where he was like, I hated it so much, but he did this thing where he'd be like, the noise, give me the noise. Like that's how he uh. asked the crowd to make noise. And like any way you ask the crowd to make noise, sounds really self-aggrandizing yeah. but that's like an extra level <laughs> just like, uh, again and listeners you should you should pay close attention because in several episodes of the real wolf record club we have all talked about uh our bad musical experiences mine was matchbox 20 hannah's was uh chumbawamba ben's was growing up in small town Shitsville, minnesota and seeing nothing till he was like 35 uh <laughs> but sean just gave us a little nugget there in which he said uh I have seen Vertical Horizon, of course, many times. What? How many times have you seen Vertical Horizon? Well, this is interesting. Once with Matchbox 20. So I wonder if we were at the same Roy (laughs) Wilkins concert. I don't know if you saw them at Roy Wilkins. Um, So I I never saw them because I thought they were good. Sean Hurley was the bass player. So he would call me when he was coming to to Minneapolis. Ah. I'll put you on the guest list. And like, it was all this stuff. He was the first person who ever showed me a tour book. Like he was like, yeah. this is the book they give me when we start the tour. And I was like, oh, my God, like you have to be at the bus at 730. That's amazing. Like all, all these things that <laughs> I just didn't know. So I, I would like like it's embarrassing that you paid money to see Chumbawamba. I never paid money to see Vertical Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, well, I was 14, so I didn't pay to see him. <laughs> <laughs> well, financed. I mean, I, so aren't they? Aren't they kind of defensible? Aren't they like a leftist organization that like Jumbo Wumba is a one hit? I think Jumbo Wumba has like a socialist front. They had two hits. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> What's the other hit, Hannah? It was like <laughs> it was like drip, drip, drip goes the water. Nope. <laughs> I sure that's not a commercial. Yeah. yeah. Nobody <laughs> plays that at parties. I have never been DJing and have somebody go drip, drip, play drip, drip, drip. <laughs> I'll call it in one of these days. Oh, wow. I <laughs> mean, you, tr- you try on the jazz station. Well, hey, do you I... have Chumbawamba? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I love that. I mean, the, the image I have right now is uh, Sean McPherson, well-known live hip-hop bassist. He's involved. He's working with all these people. And he's on the ga- He's showing up at uh, the, the Medina Country Club is where Vertical Horizon is playing. They're like, yeah, yeah, the Sean quest. McPherson. Yeah, I'm Sean McPherson. Yeah, put me in right there. Yeah. <laughs> you, right here. You, in the black shirt. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah, the Quest. That is a throwback club. Yes. That is, I missed yeah. the Quest. That was a long time ago. But, 
Well, uh, that is that is some gold. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we uh, we can get it out there enough where Sean McPherson of Jazz eighty eight and his reputation and his love and lore for Vertical Horizon becomes a thing we talk about in the future. But you know, the great American love story. You meet your buddies uh, in the high respects. You know, Felix and Woody and everybody who's in there. I, I mean, is that like a you guys kind of orbited each other for a few years and then decided, hey, we all like music, or or how did that come together? Because I mean, really. I, you know, we have a no fawning rule here at the Real Wolf Record Club, but literally the, the High Respects were a staple band, a live, energetic, upbeat, uh, fun, enthusiastic band at so many events through the Twin Cities for so long that, I mean, to, to pinpoint it, I mean, how did that come about in high school and, and carry on for the next however many years? So many years, because we're still a bit. So it's like, still a band. Since, <laughs> since we're like marginally, we're successful in Minnesota. Like we're, we, we fill clubs in Minnesota, but every once in a while we'll have some reason, like we have to play in Des Moines and we'll be playing to like 20. No, we'll be playing to like 45 people. And, and then definitely at the end of the night, like somebody comes up and they're like, you guys are amazing. Like, why aren't you bigger? How long have you been together? We have to be like, 25 years and they're just like <laughs> it it looks like you're like the ghost of hip-hop past or something and they're just like oh my god and we're we're very comfortable in our station uh but it's it's very when you're playing to 45 people people do not expect the answer we've been together for 25 years like there's right. this moment where they go oh are you on it. your way up or your way down or just kind of a little bit of this what are, you, what are we doing um the, the band was very much, there was a recording program ran by this teacher, Red, that I mentioned at Central. And there was people who were really focused on recording. And then there's people who wanted to play the type of music that wasn't band or orchestra music, but didn't really care to record it and just wanted to jam. And I was definitely from the I want to jam school. So the second day I was at Central, I borrowed this bass player, Brock Hamill's bass. He was playing Herbie Hancock's Chameleon and I knew how to play that already. So he passed me his bass and I jumped in and joined. And I was like, oh, and they were like, oh, another guy who can play bass. So I started playing bass. And that first time, Felix was one of like four or five people who rapped. Mm -hmm. But he also wasn't super into like being in the studio. He rapped every day where most of the rappers would work on the recording projects Monday through Thursday and then come play with us on Friday just for fun. But Felix has always been very like, legitimately into being around live instruments. It hasn't been like uh, something he puts up with because it's good for business. No, he like legitimately loves it. And so we had a bond and we started jamming a little bit outside of school. He would come to my house. And then I was an entrepreneurial type even back then. So I moved back to Massachusetts the summer between 10th and 11th grade because I had booked us my blues band in Massachusetts that my brother was in. I had booked us some gigs. And apparently, like, a couple of times during the summer, since this is, like, pre-cell phone, Felix would just, like, come knock on the door of the house in St. Paul. And, like, my mom would be like, he's still in Massachusetts. And he'd be like, well, just let, her, let him know I want to start a band. Like, I want to start a band. And he comes back. <laughs> and so when I got home, my mom was like, I know I told you, but like, you really got to call Chris. Like he wants to do this. And so we sort of hit the ground running and it was like, I was basically like, I'll find a drummer. You find another rapper and we'll start playing that way. So we were like the nucleus and I found a drummer. He found a rapper. Then I found a horn section and then he kept just the one rapper and we started doing that. And then it became much more of a, um, a collaborative thing. 
it should have been more collaborative. I was pretty controlling uh, early on. So I was very much like, here are the exact charts that you have to play and drummer, you're not allowed to bring your first Tom anymore. Like, um, and, and, and very like controlling about a lot of this stuff. But Felix and I were kindred spirits. We were aiming for similar things, even though we didn't always see eye to eye about it. And then that orbit um, started to include, we just, we were good right away. We were good right away. People came right away. So then if you had people who come right away, the other musicians want to play with you mm-hmm. and they want to sit in and a bunch of like, we were big enough that rappers who were bigger than us realized that they wanted to get our crowd. So mm-hmm. idea would come to rap with us. Cause he knew, I mean, I think he just legitimately enjoyed it, but I think he also was like, this is a way to tell. We, we had, a, we had a lot of the like, um wagon girls that were into our show like water bottles and the backpacks and the dancing and like they were not coming to see idea and so we were like an avenue to that audience yeah well and so i mean but there was a to your point there <clears throat> you had a song with slug uh from atmosphere mm-hmm. you guys did uh and i think a lot of that is t- there's there is that live band element that is it still remains a pretty, I don't want to say niche, but there's a definite vein through hip hop and rap of live band versus that, that I don't want to say overly produced, but produced sound. Sure. And so there was a lot of that crossover. And I think, I don't know, give you guys the, the credit of <laughs> idea might've been chasing a lot of things those days, but getting the vibe of a live band, loud, energetic, fun. And I got to tell you this, to me, it means so much. I went back and listened to you know that record from 1999, Anti-Disestablished Metabolism. Did I say it right? Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Uh, one of my favorite college records. And I, I remember listening to that and feeling like this is not like other hip-hop that I hear. Because hip-hop tends to be heavy, tends to be, uh, for a lot of reasons, heavy. But there's a there's a heaviness to it. And your guys, is not that it wasn't meaningful or have substance to it. But it was it was light. It was energy. It was It, it was felt really good. So... Anyways, no fawning rule thrown out the window there as I fawn about the high respects. Uh, yeah, don't don't we have a lawyer in the house? Can you like can you <laughs> stamp down on this and yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, so so high respects get going and you guys have you know you guys now have your own day, high respects right. day, right? December twenty second is it? Yes, I... and and it's an interesting <laughs> asterisk. What they do is they give you that day in two thousand and eight is our day, so it's not like I can park. I can't park for free <laughs> on December 22nd, 2022. But, and so they're like, but yeah, if you can see where I'm pointing, that's the proclamation. Like that, that big P it says proclamation. Um, so yeah, we got our day when we celebrated our 10 year anniversary. We are a really important part of the story of, of music in St. Paul. And I'm mm-hmm. incredibly proud of that. What, yeah. I mean, you're, you're still together, but mm-hmm. uh, any, plan i mean we're hopefully crawling out of i mean we're not going to be done with the pandemic anytime soon i think but we'll learn to live with it a lot differently and i hope that means a lot more live experiences for all of us what if any plans high respects in the next year anything coming down the pipeline yes so we've we had a record almost done before the pandemic and then we dragged our heels immensely to get through the pandemic um and we did so it's mastered and our drummer is working on the artwork for it uh, with a designer. So that record is coming out in 2022. We have a show booked July 14th at Mears Park for the like Music and Mears series. And then I'll book us a release show in probably September or October. And we'll play 
a little more than usual. If we play about five or six times a year and non-record years, we'll play 11 times. Um, and, and it'll be, that'll be about that. Uh, oh. it was very, when I was leaving the current, I did an interview with Ross from uh, Pioneer Press and he was like, so do you guys tour? And I was like, not at all. And he was like, nothing. And I was like, we don't, I can't, I can't get the whole band out of town. We've turned down like gigs in Duluth and they're just like, it's just too far. <laughs> like it's, it's two hours. And, and I think we Duluth, we actually are still relatively beloved there. We, we probably will get to Duluth not when we have a new record, but three fathers, six adults, uh, everybody like busy with other things musically or life-wise. So it's just, it's a lot to navigate, but the room I'm in right now is like our rehearsal room. So this is where we practice in my, in the basement of my house. And it's, you know, it's like, I don't know, 75 hours of work a year, but it's the most rewarding 75 hours of work I do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, your work obviously on jazz 88 and with the current and high respects and all your different projects, you're pretty music obsessed. Do you, do you recall your first moment of, of being, re, you know, you talked about your brother and playing bass or playing guitar. Or, or your first moment where you were like, I'm obsessed with music. It just hits you in your core. I mean, what was your moment? Do you remember that moment? A lot of people think of Blind Melon as like a one-hit wonder, but which is, I guess, accurate for the charts. But Blind Melon's first record, which is simply called Blind Melon, was one of those records where when I would listen to it on the way anywhere no matter what our families listen to i listened to that on headphones and it was this moment where like what shannon hoon wrote i was like oh i feel like he could only write this if he knew me it was the first time where i felt like that and i presume we've probably all felt like that where you're like how can this artist be making art that's just for me yet i can go and buy it like it, yeah. it didn't make sense scale wise and it, you know and i think i was in middle school and it was at that point where reality was still permeable enough where i was like I truly was like, how is this possible? I can't imagine how this, how anyone else could want this music the way I want this music. And I, and I felt overwhelmed by that. So I, I, I came to music as a lover of poetry and I, and being a bass player is like not one of bass is a beautiful instrument, but it's one of the least poetic instruments. A lot of the time um, that having been said, I kind of, I, I, I got that. And then from Sean Hurley, that bass, the, the bass teacher, him teaching me get up. I feel like being a sex machine by James Brown. And I was like, Oh, I love the poetry of, of some of these artists. And then I love the funk of, of James Brown. And I think it was, I was destined to kind of be like, Oh, hip hop is something that has incredibly amazing mm -hmm. lyrical content in a way that funk doesn't mm -hmm. in a way that much funk doesn't. Um, but it has this compelling groove thing. So it was, it was, it was first Blind Melon, but there was a lot, a lot more to that. And when I, Blind Melon was just a little bit bigger to me than Pearl Jam, but Pearl Jam was really close to as influential. We bring up Pearl Jam or Blind Melon. I think we're all of that age where I'm sure kids are still having that experience where there's that yeah. lightning bolt that knocks you over the head. You're like, what is this and where has it been? And, and for me, it was a lot of, you know, bands like Pearl Jam and definitely a band like Rage Against the Machine and different rap and hip hop things. But um, beyond Blonde, Blind Melon, beyond Pearl Jam, beyond some of the rap that you or hip hop you gravitated to, is there is there another side? I mean, it's obvious jazz that you're interested in. If you weren't listening to those things, what would you be listening to? I got this really good education 
about jazz from my brother going to Wesleyan and living with a kid who grew up right outside of Philadelphia. And like, even though he was 18 years old, he's like, I'm done with hip hop. I love Blue Note Records. And so it was Mm -hmm. this thing where I was like, okay. And like, so I remember vividly my, uh, my brother bringing home the record Judgment by Andrew Hill, um, who's like a, a, a relatively forward thinking piano player um, from, from the 1960s. And I remember driving around and listening to it and having no idea what I should like about it, but knowing that I did like it because my brother liked it. Um, and then finding out that there's a whole bunch of stuff that was very it was it was contemporary slash pre James Brown, but that sort of Lou Donaldson boogaloo conga player, two saxophones, organ, drums, guitar, and you know, Blue Note made you know 15 or 20 records that are world class in that world. And so I fell in with Grant Green, I fell in with Larry Young, I fell in with Freddie Hubbard, who I just uh, Ben was mentioned, I just played Little Sunflower today on the radio, but that music. Uh, spoke to me and then beyond it speaking to me it was like the way in to play with the good musicians the i met a lot of the rappers from higher or there's only two rappers in higher specs but i met felix and a lot of the musicians from higher specs as well at central but a lot of the people who were really the core of the group even if we went to central we played at walker west music academy on selby and the first the second day i went there um, Devon, who's in higher specs now, taught me how to play Stolen Moments by Oliver Nelson. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this? And I didn't know how to sight read it all. So literally, um, I think I think it's just you hit the and fast pass four and the one. But I couldn't do it. And I was very emotionally trying for me. I ended up actually crying. But I went back and listened to the record and I was like, this is amazing. Oliver Nelson. I know we're going to talk about Mingus, but Oliver Nelson is another one of those people who the reason I one of the reasons I love Mingus Alam is I love like the medium sized band, not a trio, not a big band, nine people, you know, somewhere between six people, Herbie Hancock sextet, sextet up to like a nonet. It's just like a beautiful level of possible things without having more gunpowder than you need. Yeah. Um, and that that gave me a whole bunch of ideas. And so Blue Note, Oliver Nelson, organ jazz. That was like what I was listening to. And then I was listening to modern purveyors of that. Brian Blade was really big for all of us in high school. Joshua Redman. Um, I went to so many great shows at the Dakota. And I went at the time where there was like these people were alive. I saw Ma Jamal in high school. I saw mm. Ray Brown in high school. Um, all these people who who had, would pass by the time I was like done with college. But I saw them and I saw Elvin Jones like mm. at the Dakota. So, right. Um, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned and I'm shifting, not completely shifting gears, but you mentioned, you know, band leaders and being, you know, you've got these different sizes that people have their their um, their group in. And Mingus had his his uh, his efforts in bassist, pianist, band leader. You're also a band leader, too, though. And I'm not talking about the high respects anymore. I want to know about our weird 30s. It's a record oh. that came out last year. Tell me about our <laughs> weird thirties. I mean, Dessa's on it. You've got a, just an all-star cast. Tell me about this record. Uh, this is the, like this is. It was one of those records that I left in the oven for too long mentally, <laughs> where it was. I I had a whole bunch of great ideas and a bunch of people collaborating, but I wanted to move really slowly and do a lot of the things myself. 
and do almost everything I didn't do it myself with my friend Zach Bogus and Medium Zach, who's a fantastic producer. So I played on on Twinkie Jiggles Broken Orchestra. I played the bass. I played I don't know I think keyboard on two or three songs. On this record, I play almost all the keyboard. I play a little of the guitar, and I wanted to make it. Um, I wanted to make it very methodically. But what ended up happening was that I ended up getting distracted and finding beautiful things, but having a hard time like digesting them properly. And then in the middle of the pandemic, I was like, I just have to get this fucking thing out. I just, it just, <laughs> it, it has to come out. And I chose, I, I thought our weird thirties was a beautiful name. And I also thought if I did that and didn't even use Twinkie Jiggles broken orchestra, it could just like, it, the idea that I would need to fly beneath any radar that I controlled is pretty funny. Cause like, there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's not like I'm, in Radiohead, so I have to pick a different name. So I, you know, right. nobody has ever walked past me at the in Minneapolis. But there's a higher specs fan club meeting, so you don't want to go in there. It's going to be a total zoo. Um, but I just, I just wanted to get it out and listen to it. Frankly, I'd listen to it on Spotify as opposed to on my like iTunes. Like I just like it's out. There's a couple tunes on it. I'm like really, really proud of. And actually, I'm really proud of the whole thing. Yeah. It just, it was just one of those things where. I don't know if I'll ever get a band together to play that music, mm-hmm. but I, it existed or it exists. And I'm very proud of that. You're also a trivia guy, owner of Trivia Mafia, the best team trivia gurus and company in all the upper Midwest. Have you always been an annoying, how the hell does he know that guy? I've been a, how does he remember that guy, <laughs> but not a, how does he know that guy? So I've been, um, it, it helps. I was just talking about this, maybe earlier today, it helps a lot on the radio. I'm a person where if I look at a Wikipedia page, I can make it sound like I know it intimately pretty quickly. It, was, it won't sound like I'm reading off of it, you know? Um, so that's a that's a big skill. I have never been like the, oh, I've never been a great trivia player. I've been a pretty good trivia writer, and I've been a really good facilitator of events. So mm-hmm. I do, I, I own half the company. I meet with the team on Mondays. There's but there's like the other owner, Chuck, it's his full-time job. Then we have, I guess now two or three people where it's close to their full-time job. Sure. One person where it's bona fide her full-time job, she's salary. So it's gone, it's gone a lot bigger. Um, but yeah, I was there for the, like the being on the microphone and making people scratch their head and also a little bit of a, uh, uh, an agenda of, you can actually teach people what you want to by asking trivia questions. You can ask yeah. trivia questions that illuminate people's understanding of the world. And, and trivia has done that. Uh, trivia mafia has done that in some special ways. So I'm proud of it, but no, I've never been, I'm, I'm, I'm close <laughs> to dead weight on a trivia team. So. <laughs> well, and I, I asked that question only because you know, that if you're a listener here and you've ever been to a bar in Minneapolis, twin cities area or other areas in the state of Minnesota, I don't know how far, but definitely I've seen you guys up in uh, Duluth actually yep. um, recently it, it it's there's a certain and this, trivia mafia is america pub trivia is america in the sense that i'm standing and saluting as i'm saying all this it's something that you know there's a lot of people that I, I i wouldn't go out to a concert they wouldn't go out to a show they wouldn't go out to a play but they want to go to a restaurant and, oh here's a fun thing that's yep. filling that void of not doing anything and trivia yep. mafia is such a great way and you guys have such great hosts so if you are at a bar dear listeners and you're out and you're thinking hey who is that talking it just might be sean mcpherson our good friend from jazz 88 the high respects and trivia mafia i think 
I think we're at our favorite part in the interview. Ched Talk? Ben, are we at Ched, Ched Talk? Directly into Ched Talk territory. Ched Talk territory. Here we are, Sean. Ched Talk is our rapid fire question round. Are you ready to play Ched Talk? Hell yes. <laughs> Sean, uh, who who are you playing for today? Uh, Higher Specs has a St. Paul Central Foundation so or a scholarship. So we give away uh, between two and three $2,000 scholarships a year. And at centralhighfoundation.org, which is a full nonprofit, you can donate specifically to the Higher Specs Scholarship. And so this year, it'll be more than my dad donating, which is off of that. So. Got it. Uh, Sean, our album today is, of course, Mingus Aum by the angry man of jazz, Charles Mingus. Take this any way you want it. What is Sean McPherson the angry man of? Car seats. <laughs> <laughs> the... I don't know. I don't know how things run at, at, at your house, um, but it is such where when there's a new car seat to be installed, we will give we will budget an hour where I will just be out there. And that will be a very NC-17 area of the physical plant for that hour. And and I never feel like they're fully fastened in properly. Well, so and that, there's that pressure. There's that pressure. Like I, there's a lot of stuff in my house where I'm like, it's good enough. That it's you're like you don't want to find out that all you had to do was clip it again and you didn't clip it again. You don't, and when of course. I went to the firehouse to like have them check it out before we had a kid, and this lady was like, like I just have regular trash like copies of the city pages on the floor, and she's like, these are all a hazard, and I was like, no, they're fucking not. Like I have never read an article that's like, yeah, the, the, she would have lived, but he had city pages on the floor. Like that has, that has never happened. Also, <laughs> I have to fact check you. Do you really have anything in your house that's just good enough? Because behind you, you have like 25 baseballs <laughs> encased in glass. And then that is encased in glass itself. Yeah. And then upstairs, the bookcase looks not only alphabetized, but organized by publisher and spine color, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> like, do well, you have anything in your house that is just okay? <laughs> Well, I, as somebody who has, uh, I have parents who are very helpful. Um, I'm going to defer that question to the other side of the marriage. Uh, everything's perfect in the household, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not a thing out of place. Best good enough is perfect in, in our household. You came of age in the late 90s, early 2000s music scene. Cringiest fashion on stage choice. For yourself or someone you played with? I did a show where I wore a backpack. Like I, I, was, I was playing bass and I wore a backpack. Oh, backpackers. Whatever happened? Was there anything the... in it? No. There's not. Like... Whatever happened to all the backpackers? Well, and this is a, this, there's an interesting like inside thing, which is that like people say, like, oh, you're a backpacker. And people think of it as like shorthand for a nerdy white hip hop fan. Like you go back five years before that backpacker was shorthand for a graffiti writer. And it was somebody yeah, who carried right. paint. I never carried paint in my, in my backpack or anything like that. But I think I still use a, I still wear a backpack, but it's not, I don't wear it on stage. And that was a very, <laughs> that was a low moment in my, in my fashion life. Oh man. It, I was at a show. I used to go to a lot of hardcore punk and metal shows and there was a friend of mine, and he had a he had a messenger bag. We went from me backpacks to messenger bags, and I finally sent him. I said, "Hey, 
we're at a show like what's in there and he pulled out like a half water bottle and a notebook and he told me so he can write stuff down i thought that's an answer that covers all faces <laughs> you yeah, can always write something down. <laughs> so I, I i love that that you you wore a backpack on yep. stage the best trivia category you've ever personally come up with i did a sound round once that was how to cook a thanksgiving turkey and so i found a website that was like how to cook a uh, Thanksgiving turkey and it had like five things and one of them was like moist so I found some song that had the word moist in it but there's a Busta Rhymes song produced by Dr. Dre called Break Your Neck that's like break your motherfucking neck and, and like that's one thing you have to do to cook a turkey <laughs> that was like clue number two of the sound round and, oh, and wow. like Chuck my the co-owner of Trivia Mafia had not heard the sound round until we were playing it at the 331 club where we debuted it and he was like tearing up. He was like, this is fucking brilliant. Like, this, <laughs> this is amazing. And it was, there's, the, Chuck is, I don't think this podcast is really like, you're not going to have Chuck from Trivia Mafia on. He's much better at talking about these things. But what you want for every trivia question is two ways in. So you want a way that's from your knowledge and you want a way that's in from your clue. And the cool thing is that even if you didn't know that, that Buster Rhymes song was called Break Your Neck. If you knew about cooking a turkey and you heard that type of energy, it's like, you might be like, break your neck. Like, and so it, you mm. got two ways in and to have two ways in on a sound round is very rare. So I think that is the best category I've ever made. I love the image of a grown man just single, te like tearing up, like, it's the most beautiful <laughs> trivia question I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. Weird, weirder, weirdest. You got to put these three in order. Weird, weirder, and weirdest. Bassists, podcasters, or wedding DJs? Wedding DJs are the weirdest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, if, if you're a wedding DJ for less than two years, you're not a wedding DJ. You're just a, you're a tourist and it's, it's just a job. But if you're a, if you're a person who has been a wedding DJ for two years and you go, I think I'm going to buy my own system. I should get my own lights. Then you are the weirdest. Um, I think bass players are quite normal. I think bass players are, I think, the least weird. I think podcasters are the weirder. I think you in got the middle. bassists, podcasters, wedding DJs. Yes. Mm. So. One of the things we like to do here on the Real Wolf Record Club is remind ourselves of our biases and, and the lenses with which we view the world. So, listener Sean McPherson is, in fact, a bassist, as he tells you how normally he is. <laughs> uh, our final question here on Ched Talk with Sean McPherson. The song Fables of Faubus on the Mingus Aum album is directed at Governor Orville Faubus, who famously refused to comply with the Supreme Court's school integration order. What is your favorite protest song of all time? It's a great question. So there's a there's a part of me that feels like I don't want to have a bias towards old stuff because I think there's a way in which you're like, oh, I should say keep on pushing or or, or, yeah. or one of these songs. The feeling I felt being at a number of protests when folks started playing Kendrick Lamar's All Right all the time. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is this i just haven't heard a song that provides this energy ever um so i think i don't think that's the world like everyone knows that song right sometimes sometimes we feel the the 
I scanned in my head to think if I had a cooler answer, but I don't like that's a that's an amazing yeah. song. It's an anthem um, and it it the songs of yesteryear can't speak to the terrible things that the difficult things we are facing now. But that song um, has and is, is pretty amazing. So mm. and I think that's a right answer here on The Real Wolf Record Club. Sean, you win. Ched talk on the real wolf record club uh reminder join the conversation here on the real wolf record club get at us on twitter at real wolf rc on instagram at real wolf record club or go to website realwolfrecordclub.com you probably noticed i didn't say the www there i was saying that through all these all episodes. the w's i was adding it <laughs> just always just in case you don't know you put the www first it is on the world wide web in case you think i'm under 35 i'm gonna put the w's in front just to, just, just so just... you know https is an s because it's secure yeah uh but join us go to the website find out information on our episodes all our guests you can buy some merch you can find out uh when the next episode's coming out all that good stuff this is the real wolf record club we're going to take a quick quick break and come back and talk about mingus um with our special guest sean mcpherson this is the real wolf record club Welcome back to the Real Wolf Record Club. We are here with Sean McPherson of the High Respects, Jazz 88, and all things uh, Twin Cities. <laughs> the guy's a busy man. Uh, he's here, even busier, talking about Mingus Ah Um by Charles Mingus, the angry man of jazz, jazz legend. Um, in our conversation with Sean, uh, I'm going to turn to the panel here. Uh, we talked a little bit about, I mentioned that the the, the track on the album, Fables of Fabus, is is very clearly a whether you call it a protest song or something that's just ripe with emotion and passion and directed at somebody who needed to be told what's what uh, back in 1959. It, the song Fables of Faubus, it's a protest song. It's got that anger. And I asked Sean what his uh, favorite protest song of all time. He told us it was It's All Right uh, by Kendrick Lamar. I'm going to turn to the panel, Ben and Hannah. Uh, same question. Favorite protest song of all time if you had to pick one something that you think just encapsulates that mood or moment what is it the thing that i like about the protest song that i selected is it's a song that people don't realize is a protest song so it's kind of like burrowed its way into the pop culture consciousness without people knowing that that's what it is and i, I love that feeling of kind of illuminating a song and telling people well you know you know it's really about this and that song is Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen, which you see people on the 4th of July waving flags, you know, draping them around their storming shoulders, capitals. <laughs> storming capitals. <laughs> um, but really, it's, it's a song about the response to Vietnam veterans coming back to the U.S. and not getting the support that they need. And it's really kind of a scathing criticism. But yet it's something that people... They just they hook onto that chorus of "Born in the USA" and they're you know they're pumping their fists and they're cut off, you know, jean shirts. I just I love that that experience of, you know, people adopting a song because it is good, for lots of reasons, but also not quite understanding what it's all about. Um, so that that's mine for sure. Mm. Hannah, favorite protest song of all time. I'm afraid I didn't pick anything super cool. <laughs> I ended up going with uh, Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I've just always thought that was an awesome song. A song like that, it seems crass to say you can like 
sing along with it. <laughs> but it really is something you do like just find yourself like singing along to and chanting along to, which maybe actually now that I'm saying that aloud is maybe a good thing that, you know, it's a prose test and also kind of a chant in a way. So maybe not the most <laughs> hip choice, but um, that's the first song that came to my head. And I was like, eh, I'm going to roll with that. So it's Ohio for me. Well, in that, in that song, the lyrics, I mean, four dead in Ohio, that take out Ohio and you can put that anywhere in a number of capacities. I mean, it's a song that has a lot of, a lot of resonance. Um, my, my choice is not, it's not so much a, I don't think I'd call it a protest song, but man, it is talking about the themes it it, it evokes images of exactly kind of the era. I think that, that Mingus was coming from, you know, 1959s post segregation, moving into the sixties, which we all think of as everybody went crazy. And in, in a lot of respects they did, but um, it, it's, it's change is going to come by Sam cook. And I mean, you, you hear that song and it's, it's a lot of, it's the way he sung that, that song. It's a lot of the way, you know, Aretha sang that song, um, you know, Otis Redding sang that song. It, the, the, the power of that feel of, of something's going to change at some point. It has to change at some point. And, and, you know, in lockstep with, with Mingus, you know, we are moving into the sixties, 1959 Mingus, um, fables of Faubus. There's a lot of percolating, uh, emotions. And to me, th th this song, uh, change is going to come is right in step with that. But, but I bring up the, the discussion about protest songs because, we talk a little bit about bias and, and one of the things I think a casual listener of jazz and myself, and, and that's why we've got um, our good friend, Sean here, who's now an expert in jazz. He's leading one of the great jazz stations in the nation um, to talk about is, is this bias with jazz being something you listen to in the background, something that doesn't have a lot of passion, something that's just kind of, you can swing swing a little bit too or snap your fingers too but that there's not a lot of emotion or passion to it and and i think mingus is kind of the counterpoint to that mingus is the the guy that is is anger and emotion and i don't want to say rage because i don't think he was raging but but a lot of um combustible elements to his music and fables of Faubus really captures that um, I, I want to start with the conversation then on that note, um, keeping in mind, you know, the angry man of jazz, <laughs> taking that any which way you want, wh what that means about this record. Um, what was your favorite song on Mingus? Um, and I'll start with you, Sean, your favorite song or your favorite track on this album. Goodbye Pork by Hat, uh, song number mm. two, the ballad, and, and and my, I mean, it's a lot why I picked this record, but I think I think it is the greatest jazz ballad of all time. You have probably read more about Mingus in the last two or three days than I have. I read, there's a book called Mingus, 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 that I read in high school, mm -hmm. that was kind of, I believe, written by three people, like so it's Mingus, 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 um, somewhat similar to that self-portrait and three colors concept, but like take, take different sides of the same person. I've never, I had never heard of him was referred to as the angry man in jazz or anything like that. And I feel, I think what you said about a way people think of jazz is like flat or unemotional or background music. I see that a lot. And I'm trying to like hold all these combinations of things, which is Mingus had a lot of anger. Mingus was not purely anger, the reward right. of an artist like Mingus was how how comfortable he was t drawing 
from really different broad parts of the emotional spectrum. I presume as he was a professional drawing from parts of the emotional spectrum, he might not have personally been feeling at the time, but that he felt could fit into a song or things like that. I don't want to take away his anger, but I don't want to make his anger one pitch and just go like, he's the angry guy. Even yeah, if that right. was his like moniker or things like that. Um, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat has this level of humanity. Mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a song that is relaxing, but you can't ignore it. So it's not the type of relaxation that comes from background music. It's the type of relaxation from hearing somebody come to peace with something, you know, and mm -hmm. And, and and so I absolutely adore that tune and I adore every little rule that Mingus seemed to to break in the same way Duke Ellington did of like, oh, you say the clarinets have to be on the top. No, the clarinets are going to be carrying the lowest notes and, and, and all these things. You say that if you're mainly in harmony or mainly in unison, you have to only be in unison. No, we're going to put in one note of harmony, things like that. Um, you know, you can't clap on a jazz song. You can't sing on a jazz song. As you probably know, there's not words to Fables of Falbus on this record, but there is words to Fables of Falbus. It was mm -hmm. just that Columbia one let him put them on this record. That spectrum is is what I love. Jazz can be relaxing. Jazz can be incredible background music. That doesn't make it exclusively background music. Um, and, and, and I think Mingus is not very good background music. Mingus mm -hmm. is very good lean-in music follow along music and he also it seems designed for that because nothing lasts all that long like the right. the record never sits in one texture for longer than maybe half a chorus for the most part hmm. but yeah goodbye pork by hat i answered a thousand questions for you but my answer is <laughs> goodbye pork by hat. no and I, you bring up that that point because i read the same thing as i'm reading you know the phrase the angry man of jazz the angry, i mean you can read stories about him breaking a you know, $7,000 base on stage and punching somebody in the mouth. I mean, all these things. And I, I, I personally felt it a little bit of, I'm reading these things and these, these descriptions we give and it. I, I, I don't want to make it too political or too racial or anything, but you almost wonder, is that the easy way to describe somebody who was a lot different than other jazz persons, you know, other people playing music at that time, because he had emotion at times mm -hmm. that would, you know, erupt in a, in a setting. Do we describe him always as angry? And I think to your sure. point, uh, goodbye pork pie hat. I mean, Hannah, you, this was, I think this was your favorite song. And, you know, Sean, you talked about what he was driving towards in the song. Hannah, what did you, 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 I think you chose a song. What did you find out about it that he was talking about here? Goodbye pork pie hat was a song um, written about jazz saxophonist Lester Young, who had passed away just a couple months before. So the composition feels almost sort of story-like, you know, it starts out um, really sad and mournful with the sax and the trumpets, um, really mourning, and then you move on and it starts to showcase the piano and the sax, and it almost sounds like memories somewhat of Lester, and then you kind of go back into the piece with the trumpets and the sax again and it's just a really very story-like wonderful piece of music um, and I did find I'm not sure how official this is you know because everything's true on the internet but I did find <laughs> lyrics attached to that song that I thought was interesting um, and when I read the lyrics I'm like it almost is a little bit of a story about Lester and who he was 
And it just made me think like, man, this guy knows what he's doing with composition. (laughs) Not that I'm trying to say like, oh, I really, you know, figured it out or anything like that. But I'm like, he just knows how to put a piece of music together, man. Like he, like he figured out how to tell a story about him really without needing to say it in words and describe Mm -hmm. who he was in his life and the sadness of it. Um, So yeah, it's just a really great um moody ballad yeah and i i i love that that there's because that's that's kind of what i'm getting at when i talk about you know people think i think the casual listener and i i wouldn't presume any of our fans or listeners of the real wolf record club are are casual jazz fans or not but if you if you're not as familiar with jazz and you're you're first encountering charles mingus through this episode you might listen to it and think yeah this is something i can just listen to and check out and you absolutely can and you absolutely should but what I love when you dig into these albums, and we try to do it here, is this idea of there is so much more going on. And we bring out the highlights, the peaks, the the spikes of he's the angry man of jazz. But also he's somebody who is a good enough friend to say, you know what, I got a record coming out in three months and my friend just died. He's getting a track and I'm writing it about him. And, and that to me is that it, it seemed like Mingus was using jazz, which is what his his genius was in, as the medium to just convey his, his his view, his world, his emotion, his heart, whether that be anger or mourning or grief or happiness. Um, speaking of happiness, Ben, your favorite track on this album is, is, I think, one of the happier tunes. I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know some about this album. And it is, and I, I guess maybe I'm a little bit more basic um, <laughs> here, but... I, I, you are a basic bro for sure. Yeah, I'm a basic bro, <laughs> but I'm gonna I I'm going with better get it in your soul. It's the it's the opening track, and I I don't I don't have like a expansive jazz portfolio. I'll, I'll maybe talk portfolio. about portfolio. Yeah, portfolio, <laughs> portfolio of vinyl records. It's pretty minimal, uh, not diversified. Uh, we'll get into that, but. I I'm I'm just getting back to the basics here. I just loved this song. I loved it as the introduction to the album, but I really loved the solos, especially the drum solo. So I'm a, a former drummer, very very amateur drummer, and I, I'm feeling a bit sweaty and and self-conscious, maybe even a bit triggered because I'm a drummer, former wedding DJ, and a podcaster. I think I'm in like the <laughs> trifecta of weirdness what a freak (laughs) i'm in sean mcpherson's trifecta of weirdness here but man the 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 drums are great on this uh, on this track the sax is great on this track and i i think this is something that sean that you mentioned it's got claps in it right like this is a this is a jazz track with some clapping and i mean it just it's so lively it's such a fun listen to joe's point it is not a background track whatsoever. This is front and center, like grab your attention, and it brings you into the album. And I think it just really sets it up, the whole album, nicely and, and kind of just guides you right into Goodbye Pork by Hat as the second track. And uh, I, I loved it. Mm. Yeah, there's there's definitely, and that's that, that diversity so far. We've got Goodbye Pork by Hat. We've got Better, better Get in Your Soul. I, I will go. I've already, already talked about it a little bit. For me, you know, hardcore punk rage against the machine kid i loved what i you know digging into um fables of faubus 
the the energy and emotion of that song when i say energy i mean the the when you find out what the lyrics are and you learn about what he who he's talking to what he's talking about and then you hear some of the I almost describe it. I'm picturing these horrible scenes that we all know from grade school growing up, learning about um, repression in the South in the 60s and 50s. And people, there, there's this kind of drag step drum in the middle of the song. And there's these kind of loping little notes that come out. And I'm picturing people being beaten and brutalized and dragged through the streets and thrown into paddy wagons and put in jail and all these horrible things. And I'm thinking somebody took the time and energy to create a piece that would make me feel that that's 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 what we talk about when we say genius um and you can call him the angry man of jazz you could just say he's a genius and that's the same piece um i don't think anger is is a negative by any sense so for me it was pretty clear um fables of fabulous but talking about those lyrics um I know what you're all thinking casual jazz fan and real wolf record club listener you're saying well this is a jazz album there's no lyrics in jazz, or are there? Let's turn to the word nerd. Word nerd, what do you got for us on this album? Uh, so we're going to keep talking about Fables of Falbus <laughs> here. And we talked about uh, before how it does have, in fact, lyrics that weren't released at the time because when Columbia Record saw what they were, this is right during, you know, the civil rights movement. They saw the lyrics to the song and were like, ooh, ooh, yeah, mm. I think we're going to leave these off. <laughs> but then they did get published at a later time. And the little snippet that I selected was, oh, Lord, no more Ku Klux Klan. Name me someone who is ridiculous, Danny. Governor Faubus. Why is he so sick and ridiculous? He won't permit integrated schools, then he's a fool. And yeah, when we're talking about protest songs, you typically don't think of jazz as protest music. You think of a lot of stuff from like 60s, 70s rock or even like more contemporary things today that are protesting our current issues that we're experiencing at the moment. Yeah, so it was just kind of a, a kick that you found like, oh no, there actually were lyrics to this song. And, and no, nowadays you wouldn't think twice about publishing lyrics like that but at the time it was like Ooh. so yeah that's what I ended up picking I just found it so interesting that it was definitely like an angry an angry song uh and even I mean the title track when you know actually what it's about you're like oh that's uh, he's talking to somebody yeah like fables of Falbus. like that's yeah. kind of a burn right in and of itself once you kind of know a little uh you know behind the music well and I love the fact that he says Danny Governor Falbus. And you think, well, the governor's name was Danny? I don't know. No, no it was Danny. No, but it was Danny Richmond, right? His drummer. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I want to underline, uh, thank you for pulling out those lyrics, Hannah. And I think, like, I, I've listened to the instrumental version a lot more because it's on this big record. And I've, I've listened to the vocal version back in the day and then, like, in preparation for coming on here. There's an element, in my opinion, of humor to the way the lyrics are delivered. And there's an element that I like that I see it as it's not it, what because of the f power that Governor Faubus had, it's not funny. But he, I remember watching the documentaries about Little Rock, and he looked to me like an idiot, a powerful idiot, yeah. but like this, this person where the, the, the tide was changing. Like he was, <laughs> he did not prevail, right? Like the, those, right. those, those black students stayed in mm -hmm. that school at Little Rock. 
which was an absolutely uphill battle for those students. Um, but I, I noticed that there's an element of humor, and you even say like he shout out Danny, who's somebody that, and also interesting. They don't they shout out Ike like yeah. Eisenhower, who's the dude who sent the National Guard in, right? And so, but they're not going to paint him as some kind of racial hero. And it, it was it, he's not a hero. Period. It was it was one of those moments where it was really I don't know. I thought it was a really powerful way to stick your tongue out at powerful people. Mm-hmm. And just speak truth about how shallow and, and more than shallow, pitiful um, the position of, a, of Orville Faubus was. But it's just there's an anger, but there's like a like a, a, a fuck you to it that seems kind of like has more of the, the shoulder shrug to me than than the like finger wag. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's and that's exactly I think you're exactly right. I mean, that and that's I bring up the, you know, Danny, he's ta- he's talking to his drummer. Right. Picture how dismissive of somebody like Orville Faubus that is you got a guy who's making a jazz record and in the middle of it and let's assume that for the sake of argument he's got the lyrics and he's got a vocalist and in the middle of talking pointing his finger at Orville Faubus he says Danny he starts yelling at his drummer like just dismissive of you are such a fool you are so ridiculous I just I couldn't get as much as I loved so much of this album I couldn't get past this track as there's so much happening here. There's so much depth that it, it's. I just. I'm so glad that Hannah pulled out those those lyrics of, yeah, he's speaking straight up to a governor in a way that's direct. It's emotional, but it's also dismissive. And sometimes dismissiveness is the, that's the that's the rapier sword, as they say. That is such a such a strong weapon. Um, with that, we've got a couple more things to talk about. One of which is our favorite favorite moment our favorite moment on the album and i'm a big fan and, and it might work here better on a jazz album give it a timestamp. put a moment on it say you know what at this point in this song when this happens i get what has it been uh frisian eczema no you get egg, what do you get when frisian frisian <laughs> you get goosebumps you feel it. We've mentioned Frisian. Whoever invented it is probably getting royalties just from this podcast because we <laughs> mention it all the time. But it's true. You hear music and you get those chills of this is powerful stuff. And according to Ben's scientific research um, within his own household, one in two people don't get Frisian. <laughs> That's from ben music. Gets, ben gets Frisian. Uh, his significant other does not get Frisian. Uh, but. It's it's something that's powerful, and that's what we talk about when we talk about favorite moment. Your favorite moment on the album, Sean. What's your favorite moment on Mingus Al? It's it's what Ben was talking about. It's the hand clap part of Better Get in Your Soul, right? There's that uh, moment, that song, and Danny Richmond in particular, and Charles Mingus in general, but very comfortable, like with relatively loose deliveries of time. Like it's not one of these like airtight bands that are hitting everything perfectly. And when it goes to that, like, it's just like, it's not only that there's clapping, it's not the pattern I would expect, to be honest with you, which might be like, just like not knowing the idiom well enough. But I was like, this is, this interrupted what I expected to have happen. And then when it comes back and the soloist keeps on going, I was just like, God, this is like, Mingus does, he really seems like song first, jazz second, you know, that it's just Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm going to get these songs out. This is what I was going to say. And obviously he's an incredible student of jazz and an incredibly capable bass player. But at that moment, I was just like, I've never, I've never heard a jazz saxophone player 
offered a better change in textures. Like, hey, you're going to get eight bars where it's clapping, and then it's going to explode into this, like, rumbling 6-8, yeah. like, shout chorus thing. And it, and it was just like, and it's all there, and it and nobody's picked up on that since. Like, it, that's not become a thing that happens all that often. Right. Perhaps because it was done so perfectly that people were like, let's not do that. But, I mean, I've been to a shit ton of jazz concerts. I don't think I've ever seen like sort of like a rousing I've had see people ask clap on the two or four clap on eighth notes, but not like this sort of like the band's going to do. It was just, it's just stunning. It's brilliant. And it's not repeated. Right. You know, Sean, on a previous episode, we talked with our friend Eric Foss from secret stash records about being a, do you want to be a tight band or a loose band? And an example of uh, a loose band would be Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Um, you know, Neil Young, he, he wanted a very loose band. He wanted right. them to miss stuff. Is Charles Mingus and his band, are they, are they one or the other or both? Are they a loose band, a tight band, or a loose tight band? I think they're just loose. I, 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 I greatly, as a bass player, understand what Eric Foss is talking about. And I think Danny Richmond is really perfect to me. But the way it's explained is that Danny Richmond had kind of a similar relationship to maybe the way Prince had with Bobby Z, where it was like, sure. no, this is not the top drummer in town, but this is the top drummer in town for me. Right. So that when they got together with Danny Richmond, he wasn't an elite drummer. And then they stayed together for 21 years because they had this symmetry, this like this, this special thing. But that special thing was not at least is not metronomic tightness the way I've studied it, the way where I go, oh, it's like, it's it's something more impressive than tight, and it's and it's world class musicians playing loosely, and I think yeah. I think that that's a, a special thing, which is like the same as Crazy Horse. It's not like it's not like those dudes are missing frets, right? They're just they're getting to things at slightly different times. They're exploring things in different ways. They're willing to let some of that messiness ride, um, mm -hmm. and I, I hear some of the same in this group. Um, Hannah, what was your favorite moment on the record here? <laughs> I'm going to keep this party rolling. <laughs> it was better in your soul, but a different part of the song, luckily. It's the very beginning of the song where you hear the like boom, boom, boom of the bass, and then it takes off. It's almost like Mingus is, he, he's hooking you right away. He has composed this brilliant body of work, and it's almost like he's letting you know right off the bat, like, buckle up you're in for a treat and he just takes off that's an actual quote actually charles mingus he said buckle up you're in for a treat i think and people were like what's what's a buckle it's in the liner notes <laughs> yeah, yeah what's a buckle <laughs> what's a buckle right uh ben what was your favorite moment on mingus um you know for me i i did love the clapping i mentioned it in in, in my um description of my favorite song but i'm gonna i'm gonna go a little bit different i'm gonna i'm gonna align with joe here on my favorite moment, and it's it's at the timestamp of zero dot zero zero of Fables of Phobos, and kind of that that introduction, that interplay between the saxophone and the bass. It's just kind of this like swirling, mm -hmm. like it, it kind of like you, you got this like swing to it. But to me, not having the context and then reading about this song and what it, what it's about. It initially struck me as kind of like the Pink Panther. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but uh, you know that that kind of like 
mysterious kind of foreboding. And then as I was thinking about the the, the lyrics and, and some of the artistry behind the song, you know, I, my interpretation of it, because I, this is part of what I love about jazz, is there isn't somebody telling you necessarily exactly what everything means. You interpret what it means, how it feels to you. And that's part of what I am getting to know about jazz and, and getting to love about jazz. But to me, knowing a little bit of the context and, and, and how it makes me feel, it almost feels like it's this, how could you be this naive? Like, I, I just don't understand. It's almost like confusion. It's like this kind of like this mystery and, and, and not understanding, like how you could really think that in, in like at this day and age, like how could you, how could you think that like segregation was okay? And, and so I, I just took it a little bit of a different way, but just the way that the, that the instruments made me feel and, and just kind of that swirling sway as it was like this vortex sucking you into the song. I just, I just loved it. Mm. Yeah. It's there, there's, and that's the thing I think the takeaway before we get to our, you know, <laughs> before we put things on a playlist, before we rank it, I want the listeners to, to number one, listen to this album and think about your, your biases when you come to music. And when you think about this is jazz, He's been called angry. He's there's no lyrics. What what actually is happening? Well, no, there are lyrics. You got to dig for them. There is a lot happening. You got to listen for it. There are a lot of things that are moving and changing throughout the record that you might not expect and you might not even realize are happening. So go ahead and listen to it again. We are going to take a very very quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to put it on a playlist, and then we're going to give this album our ranking. This is the Real Wolf Record Club. This is Sean McPherson, and you are listening to the Real Wolf Record Club. We are back on the Real Wolf Record Club home stretch of our album Mingus Ah Um by Charles Mingus with our good friend Sean McPherson. McPherson, I was told. Hey, McPherson. Yeah. McPherson. Uh, we are we are going. You know, we've talked a lot about the the unique individual that Charles Mingus was. And speaking of unique individuals, we are going to talk to our good friend Ben here on the Real Wolf Record Club. Ben, put it on a playlist. Well, Joe, you've mentioned many times on this podcast and even in today's recording that I am a former wedding DJ, which... We are, we are now firmly established is the weirdest of the weird. Although I did not meet the two-year mark that Sean had okay. mentioned earlier. I, I, I dipped out right about at the two-year mark before I started buying all my own equipment and such. Gotcha. Uh, but we have the distinct pleasure today of being joined by a real DJ. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Joe had mentioned this before. We do have a strict no-fawning policy here at the Real Wolf Record Club, but... I cannot, as the put-it-on-a-playlist guru of the Real Wolf Record Club, I cannot hide my enthusiasm about being joined by someone who literally makes their living creating playlists and sharing music and even creating music. So it just really doesn't get much better than that for me. But today we are going to be going full being John Malkovich. That's right, listeners. You're going down the playlist rabbit hole into a playlist called Anatomy of a Wedding Dance. And this is songs that follow the phases of a perfectly executed wedding reception dance from the dinner music phase 
to the train phase to the closer what is the train? <laughs> <laughs> so we're starting off this playlist, as always, with a song from the album "Goodbye Pork Pie Hat," Sean's favorite song on this album by Charles Mingus, and this is what we're gonna play at, at the cocktail hour and dinner. It's just something that it, it has. It, you know, Sean described it as a ballad, a perfect ballad, actually, and I agree. It's a good one to play in the background, keep people kind of entertained. But we're gonna transition right away then to the first dance. And that has to be Etta James at last. I would say when I was a winning DJ, it was about 50-50. It's either going to be at last or something else. <laughs> the next thing, this is a little tip for all those aspiring wedding DJs out there. <laughs> go right into the kids aspiring go nuts. Wedding aspiring wedding DJs, yes. That does not exist. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you find oh, yourself. You, you find yourself audience. one day just my audience. Um, DJing <laughs> weddings now. At my least, audience. I guarantee you. <laughs> Two weeks before anyone has DJed a wedding, they've gone, fuck it. I'm doing it. Like, yeah. <laughs> To all the aspiring wedding DJs out there, this next phase is what I lovingly call the kids go nuts so their parents can slam a drink and grandparents get loose phase. And that's where you can have the choice between Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake or Happy by Pharrell Williams. It's just something that gets the kids out there. It's a song they're familiar with. They burn off some energy while their parents can, like, order a double or something. <laughs> Next, you're going to want to go into the oldies and good, oldies but goodies phase and play a little ABC by Jackson 5, and then you want to slow it down before the old people start complaining. So you're going to play a little Al Green, Let's Stay Together. Then you've got the old people out on the dance floor. You've got to keep them there. So we're playing a little Earth, Wind, and Fire by September. <laughs> then you're going to make this the deft transition into the following instruction phase of the wedding <laughs> and you're going to play twist and shout by the beatles get everybody knowing what they're supposed to be doing out on that hardwood floor and as i mentioned in the intro the next thing is going to be the train phase that's where you play a song where everybody does the train oh. and they start winding around the reception hall and that's going to be love train by the ojs next this is gonna throw this is gonna throw our, our host Joe for a little bit of a loop, but you want to go right into the nostalgia phase, and that's where you're gonna play your Insyncs, your Biebers, your Michael Jacksons, something you haven't heard forever, but you would have heard at a middle school dance. But for this playlist, I'm gonna select Miley Cyrus, "Party in the USA," gets everybody out on the floor. Next, we're gonna play a little thing called "Pick Your Slide or Shuffle," so this is your Cha Chas, Electrics slides your wobbles your duggies we're gonna go with the cupid shuffle by cupid <laughs> we have we've got a few phases left i think it's only three or four here but the next one is going to be the yelling phase so uh you could go with don't stop believing by journey but on this playlist we're gonna say shout parts one and two by the Eiley brothers the next phase this is my personal favorite phase of the wedding dance I call it the drunk girl demands phase. <laughs> and this is where one in 10 of the requests is a gem. They're usually, almost always, explicit. They're usually made at about 8 o'clock in, in the evening. 8 o'clock? 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. It's, it's someone that's been, that, that's been hitting it hard since the cocktail hour. And so what would be something that maybe hits the cutting room floor? We're talking about like Cardi B, W-A-P. It's a number one hit, but it's not something you're going to play at a wedding. But uh, knowing a, a drunk girl, 
that has made this demand, one that is very near and dear to my heart, we're going to put on DJ Snake, Turn Down for What? As one day you could actually maybe slip through and play. <laughs> the last two things you want to do is you're going to want to fill the floor, and that's when you're going to play Outcast. Hey, yeah, uh, I cannot tell you how many seven-year-old women I've seen dancing to Outcast. Hey, yeah, uh, <laughs> it is the perfect. It is literally the perfect wedding dance song. And the last phase, and I know, listeners, thank you for sticking with me on this one. It's an extended cut of the Put It On A Playlist. I understand that. But we are now going out of the dark and into the light. We want something with dramatic vocals, sway dancing, and something that you can fade out when they actually do start turning the lights on. And this is Queen, Somebody to Love, one of my favorite just belt it out when you're it fully imbibed. And that's how we end it, folks. Thank you. Add a little love shack in there. This is every single Midwestern wedding I've been to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Woo! I mean, I, I got to tell you, I've been to a lot of weddings. And as a guy who absolutely, look, Sean had his moment with, oh, I'm in a big band, all that shit. Here's my moment. I crush a wedding dance, and I want those. <laughs> I want those old folks out of there earlier. Get them out of there. That is that is an interesting little uh, little uh, lineup you got there, Sean. How do you do, Ben? When the wedding DJ union elects an ambassador to be like, we need somebody to go out there and do podcasts to show people that wedding DJs aren't weird. <laughs> They ain't picking you. I'm just letting you know. They're like, they're, they're like, they're, you're like, what about, what about Scott? Scott's, Scott's, Scott's normal. Guy? Why do we, why do we have Scott? Wait, 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 wait. Can't we just pick somebody that's a little less intense? <laughs> uh, no. All right. Well, Sean, Sean, you're the real DJ. Would you hire him? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I it's just, I feel like. I love it hiring a wedding like so a lot i get asked to do weddings and i try to ask for enough money that it doesn't work out because i yeah. don't i don't <laughs> i don't want to do it that much but then if i do do it i want to hire i have a friend named sean hogan who's like an incredible wedding dj so i basically want them to pay me enough for him to dj and for me to look like i'm djing and dj an hour of my stuff you know and like oh i'm gonna yeah play you stuff where they go oh yeah that was that's the guy from the radio but then at some point somebody needs to play queen Right. And at, that, at the point where somebody needs to play Queen, I just want to have a microphone and be like, hey, who's having a good time? We're playing Queen. Like, and let, and let uh, somebody else do it. Um, but yeah, that's like, it's, I, mean, I've, I feel like being a good wedding DJ is like being very good at drywall or something where it's just like, do, do it, do the shit. And you do just the did the work. Shit. That's the right, you, you pick the right songs. Nobody's going to complain. You definitely need to pronounce the Evan D because it sounded like you were like, I know a lot of seven-year-old women who dance to "Hey Ya," and I was like, seventy-year-old women. Seventy. Uh, yeah, I heard seven-year-old women, but I know Ben well enough to know that he definitely yeah. meant seventy, uh, which is the other spectrum of weird. But we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> we are now in the home stretch of our our discussion of Mingus Aum here on the Real Wolf Record Club. We are going to give it our patented ranking, our ranking of bury it borrow it buy it or buy it again and obviously we come at this from the vinyl perspective uh we are all vinyl collectors here i think it, i i i have several records that i have multiple 
incarnations of that I have worn out. One to stock, one to rock, so you would buy it again. It's the top. It's so good, you need a second copy. You would buy it because you need it, but you're not probably going to wear it out. You would borrow it. It's good enough. You want to hear it, but you don't need to own it and bury it. Man, get that thing out of my house. Um, so we're, we're going to give Mingus uh, um we're gonna give it our our ranking. I'm gonna I'll, I'll lead things off here and tell you that I think this is for me. Um, I come at record collecting a little differently. It's a little bit like collecting works of art, something you would want to hang on the wall, something you would want to look at, something you would need to own because you value it. It's whether it for its creation or just how it sounds or how it feels or how it looks on a wall or how it sounds out of a speaker. I think I need to own a lot of stuff. So listeners who've been following along this far, you know. I, I rank things pretty highly. I'm pretty I, I'm pretty in on a lot of stuff. So for me, this is definitely a buy it. I'm not a huge jazz guy ultimately. I like what I like. We've got a lot of different stuff. We got you know Dizzy Gillespie and Stan Getz and and um, Thelonious Monk and a lot of good stuff in our collection at home. But I definitely need to own this. I think this is something that I would see myself putting on side one, letting it play, flipping it, letting it play. I don't know that I'd wear it out, but I'm definitely going to buy it for sure. We'll turn to, to Hannah. What would you give this record? I'm definitely going to buy it again. This album, to me, is outrageously good. And I feel like it's a very accessible album. Like You don't need to be like a, quote, jazz person sure. to be able to enjoy this album. The album is it's amusing. It's energetic. It's melancholy. It's smooth. All in one breath. Ben, what's your ranking of Mingus? Um, yeah, I talked about this earlier that my my jazz album portfolio, and I went down and took a look at it, and I've got Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, Dave Brubeck, Time Out, John Coltrane, Giant Steps, and I I considered this in the context of those albums, and then I came up with a trivia question. Does anybody know what this album and those three albums have in common? 1959. Absolutely. Of course the music director on Jazz Station gets it. Yes. Every (laughs) single one of those albums was recorded in 1959. Just like my playlist, I have this hyper-specific jazz taste because this is one that's a buy it for me and it's going to have to get added to my collection. And it might not quite reach the Miles Davis kind of blue level of adoration for me, but I think it's probably number two on that list sean mcpherson uh our guest here today on the real wolf record club how do you rank mingus um you get the final word buy it again it's 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 worth studying it's worth playing a a lot of times there i mean i i i i agree with hannah that there's just there are records that i love that i think you do have to know a little something about jazz to enjoy i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think there's records and rock where you have to know a little something about other rock to really enjoy it but people get intimidated foolishly by jazz or they think it's all like that but it's just one of those records like you don't need you don't need to know what you know a, a dominant seventh chord is to just go like this is amazing this is yeah. stunning work so amen to that well i i think we all agree listeners Go check out Mingus Alum. This is an incredible album. Uh, it's got some passion. It's got some emotion. It's got some melancholy. But 
no matter what angle you come at it from, this is something that you, you can't ignore. We've said that before about other albums, but you can't ignore this album. You have to grapple with it. And I think that's that's what makes great art, whether it be music or, or any other medium. It's something that you have to address. And that's what I love about about music is you have to respond to it. And certainly Mingus Ha'am is that album. Uh, this has been the Real Wolf Record Club. Our discussion today has been with Sean McPherson. Uh, I don't even want to go back in through his biography and all the things he's doing because he's doing so much. Sean, where can our listeners who maybe don't get Jazz 88 on their radio dial, uh, or maybe who do, where where can they see you next? They can hear on the radio, but what what can we see, uh, what can we expect next from you? I think I'll I will start blogging a little bit more. I've been my plate's been so full with the new job, but um, if I if I do anything cool, I will at some point mention that at McPherson.club, my uh, my hit blog mcpherson.club is the place to check out uh is there a www in front of that there's we got four w's gotcha four w's uh sean mcpherson he's the host uh the the music director and the afternoon host of jazz 88 a nationally highly rated jazz station in the twin cities uh he plays in the band the high respects as you heard him he's gonna play some live shows this fall this summer yay Come check out the high respects. Follow him and all the great things he's doing. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being here on the Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, listeners, please check us out at www.realwolfrecordclub.com, on Twitter at RealWolfRC, and on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. We've got so many more great episodes and great guests to talk to you, our dear listeners, about the great music that binds all of us and connects all of us. This is the Real Wolf Record Club. If you like this, then move like this and groove like this. The tune is like this. This has been the Real Wolf Record Club podcast. The Real Wolf Record Club is a production of Real Wolf Productions LLC, a limited liability company. The show is produced today by Ben Head. Our panelists were Ryan McKinnis, Hannah Van Tomey, and I'm your host, Joe Van Tomey. Follow us and join the club on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. On Twitter at Real Wolf RC. Go to our website to find links to the episodes, upcoming news and information, as well as a link to buy merch from our very own Ward Sutton at www.realwolfrecordclub.com. You're listening to If You Like This by High Respects. Join us next episode when we discuss the surprising 1974 album On the Beach by Neil Young. So if you like this, then move like this, and groove like this, the tunes like this. If you like this, then move like this, and groove like this, the tunes like this. If you like this, then move like this, and groove like this, the tunes like this. If you like this, then move like this, and groove like this, the tunes like this. This.